this way down. I'm Laurel, and I'm an alcoholic. And let's start this meeting with a moment of silence, followed by the surrender prayer. Surrender prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know. Okay. I don't know how many of you know this, but we just got in from the airport. Um, I've been in Atlanta since 12 o'clock, um, and um, that's why I'm dressed the way I am. Um, I bought a really cute outfit, um, and it's in my suitcase. Um, and, um, you know, I was, I was trying to think of something really funny to say about today and, and being at the airport in Atlanta for five hours, but then I thought there's really nothing funny about that. Um, um, the one good thing about being at the, at the Atlanta airport is there is plenty of shopping and, you know, I thought I could probably write a book about, you know, what to do at the Atlanta airport when you're stuck there for five hours. Um, you know, I felt bad for the ladies picking me up because they were stuck at the Evansville airport for five hours. And I know there's nothing to do there. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's why I'm not dressed up. Otherwise, you know, I'd be all looking all, you know, professional or sober, whatever. I don't know. But you got me the way I really am. So um, anyway, um, you know, I get... I'm not as nervous, I guess, as I would be had I had time to prayer. I usually like to, you know, get there early and spend time in my room reading and praying and meditating and, you know, and I always think about the last time I spoke and, you know, I kind of, I can't help but compare, um, you know, speaking and, and thinking about the last time I spoke and, you know, the last time I spoke went really, really well and, you know, I got a great response and, you know, it was one of those times that, you know, I was just on, you know, and, you know, people were laughing and crying, and, you know, I got, I don't know, five standing ovations, and I don't know, people just went on and on and on, and they carried me out on their shoulders, and, you know, and then I woke up, and um, so, you know, it's like when I speak, you know, I'm not just, there's just a lot of stress involved, um, but Getting here late and just rushing in, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to, I guess, get centered and pray. And, and the good news is I have a, an entire group of friends back home praying for me. So that, that brings me a lot of peace and a lot of comfort. So if things go really bad tonight, it's their fault. Um, um, anyway, to tell you a little bit about what I was like, and I don't like to spend a lot of time talking about my drinking because you know, we've all done it. We all know what it was like. Um, but, you know, I, I came from, I guess, what I consider a normal, dysfunctional family. Um, you know, I like to say my family put the fun in dysfunctional. Um, you know, I came from a Catholic family, and, and that should tell you something right there. Um, we, uh, I'm the second oldest of six kids. Um, and I grew up in one of those families where we had to make things look good for everyone. Um, we had a lot of um, things going on on the inside, but weren't allowed to talk about it. Um, 
we had to look good. We had to um, keep a lot of secrets about things that were going on in the family. Um, you know, I look back, and out of all all six of us kids, I you know I'm the one that happened to grow up even before I ever took a drink, um, thinking I was different, feeling different, feeling less than, feeling um, like I didn't belong, feeling. Um, ugly feeling just like a misfit you know I thought I was adopted um, I just just something was not right with me and I knew it just from as long as I can remember um, I had my first drink when I was 10 years old um, and and it wasn't even a lot or anything and I knew it was something I wasn't supposed to do but the first time I drank enough to get drunk I remember it was magic and it, it took away everything bad I felt about myself. And suddenly the world was a great place to be. And suddenly I wasn't um, different. And I wasn't ugly. And I wasn't fat. And I wasn't a misfit. I mean, everything changed with, with alcohol. And I knew that that was something I wanted to continue. Um, and, and then I had that Catholic guilt, on the other hand. And I don't know how many of you are Catholic, but uh, being Catholic, you have this huge amount of guilt that comes with pretty much everything you do. Um, so it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a hard thing to do: drinking and then guilt, and drinking and guilt. Um, but as a young girl, I, I drank every opportunity I could. Um, I went to Catholic schools and. You know, I, I drank um, whenever I could. I would. There were opportunities um, where I was drunk at school um, in ninth grade. Um, you know, we had one of the things we did um, at our school was have a Passover meal to celebrate Passover. Instead of thinking of this as this religious experience and to learn about this this religious experience, you know, we got to bring wine and things like that. I saw it as an opportunity to drink. Um, and we got to bring wine, and, you know, we each got a little cup of wine, and I drank mine, and then, of course, most of the kids didn't like it, so I drank theirs. And then we got seconds, so I made sure everyone got seconds, and then I drank theirs. And I ended up getting drunk at school, and I was sitting on the playground and spinning around and around, and I wasn't on the merry-go-round or anything, but um, I just remember just, you know, even though I was all alone on the playground, I felt like I was with everybody. You know, I, I just felt whole and complete and just at peace. You know, just those, just those few moments of just being at peace and feeling just complete, like I had the world by the, by the tail. Um, and God, I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, you know, and the, and when it wore off, I was back to just feeling miserable and depressed. And, you know, I just, you know, I just hated it. I hated myself. Um, you know, and the, and the other thing with me is, is I suffered from depression from an early age. And, and what happened with me is, is I started thinking about killing myself at an early age. When I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about dying. Um, and it was like this horrible extreme. Um, I went to a public high school, and I remember being terrified because in, in my little Catholic school, we had like 17 kids in the entire ninth grade. In this public high school, there was 300 and something in the 10th grade. 
And I remember being terrified. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I was going to fit in. Um, so I went into my parents' liquor cabinet and started drinking whatever they had. And, you know, of course the alcohol, it was like, it, it did for me what I needed it to do. And all of a sudden it didn't matter. You know, I was, high school is no big deal. Um, my parents didn't drink, but they had some alcohol in the house. Um, and I would start, you know, Monday with whatever, whiskey, and finish on Fridays with gin. Um, and I hated Fridays because I hated gin. Um, hated the way it smelled and hated the way it tasted, but it, you know, it didn't matter because I, I wanted to drink and I wanted that feeling and, and wanted to feel complete and feel good and, and all that. So, you know, I drank it on Fridays and, um, you know, as, as I went through high school, of course, it took more and more to get that same feeling. And, you know, and I started mixing other things, um, you know, because I'm a young person and that's what we do, okay? Um, I, you know, the alcohol would only do so much for me and I would drink more and more and more to get the same effect and and then that didn't work. So I was, I was using other things. Um, by the time I got to high school, I was bringing alcohol to school. I was carrying fists in my purse. I was getting drunk before school. I was drinking during school. Um, I was using other drugs. You know, if someone gave me pills and said, you know, take one, it'll make you feel good. I took five, you know, and then drank on top of that. Um, I just wanted to be in oblivion all the time um, because not being drunk was miserable for me. Um, you know, at this point, my parents really didn't know anything. They just saw my depression, and they were trying to treat that and trying to deal with that. Um, you know, and, and I started at this time, or actually in ninth grade is when I started self-mutilating. Um, and that's just, you know, happens to be part of my disease. And, you know, I used to not talk about that at meetings, um, but when I started talking about it, I've had so many people come up to me after the meeting and, and say, I did that too. So it's important for me to talk about that as part of my disease. Um, and how far I went down. Um, when I, um, you know, I just got sicker and sicker in high school. Um, you know, and I remember having all these dreams of things I wanted to do and, and the things I wanted to be. And, you know, I had all these values. And as my drinking progressed, I violated every value I had. And, of course, I never became the person I wanted to be. Um, I never was the daughter I wanted to be. I never was the sister I wanted to be. Um, I was never the friend I wanted to be. Um, I cheated, lied, and stole. Um, I mean, nothing mattered to me except drinking. Um, my grades, of course, went down the tubes. Um, you know, I, I mean, just everything. Um, my parents finally took me to counseling. They didn't see the drinking yet. They just saw the depression, and they started seeing the um, suicide attempts and things like that and started taking me to counseling. Of course, you know, when I went to counseling, all I did was talk about my parents don't trust me and, you know, all that stuff. 
and I went to see this counselor for quite a long time, and um, he would ask me about my drink, and of course, you know, I would tell him I don't have a drinking problem. I drink once in a while just for fun with my friends. Um, and during my senior year of high school, um, my drinking was a lot worse. Um, I wasn't eating much and drinking constantly. Um, my counselor was asking me if I had a drinking problem. No, no, no. You know, slight, maybe slight, tiny. Um, and I remember I went to him one time, and um, I happened to have a, a fifth with me. <laughs> I don't know how many people slight drinking problems carry fifths with them, but um, I just happened and happened to have just a little bit left in the bottle. And he was asking me about my drinking again, and um, you know I said, yeah, you know I don't have a problem. Yeah, I ha you know I have a little booze in my purse right now, but. <laughs> Doesn't every 17-year-old carry fifths in their purse? I mean, come on, I'm a teenager. This is what we do. Um, and he said, well, if you don't have a problem, then go pour it out in the bathroom. I'll wait here for you. I was like, okay, no problem. Do it. So I went in the bathroom, and I started to pour it out. And I remember, I mean, my heart just sunk. It was like getting rid of my best friend. And I went back in the room, and he said, okay, here's your options. You tell your parents you're an alcoholic, or I do. I was like, alcoholic? Isn't that a little drastic? You know, I'm 17 years old. Um, so, you know, quick thinking, quick thinking. I was like, let me handle it. I'll tell them. Because um, I know how to handle my parents. Um, so I went home, and you have to be very delicate with my parents. Um, at this time, my mom was... Um, she was all into the rapping with your teens, um, and she was reading all these books on, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, and she had all these books on how to rap with your teenagers, and she was so desperate to communicate with me and reach me, and um, I mean, she was doing everything she could to talk to me, and I, you know, I was just constantly just, just blocking her out. My dad, on the other hand, um, was a sergeant major in the army, so... You know, you don't, basically, you just don't talk to him. Um, so he was going to be a little tricky. So I know I had to go through mom first. Um, so I, I went home from the counselor, and, you know, I was like, Mom, we need to talk. And she was so excited. She's like, oh my God, we're going to talk. Okay. So um, I said, well, you know, I, you know, you're going to be really upset with me. And she's like, never, never, I'll never be upset with you. As long as you tell me the truth, that was her big thing. As long as you tell me the truth, I'll, I won't be angry. And I was like, Mom, you're going to hate me. And I, you know, poured on the tears and everything. And, you know, she's all excited because here we are going to have our mother-daughter heart-to-heart. And, um, you know, and I, I was like, Mom, you're going to hate me. And she goes, oh, my God, you're pregnant. I was like, mother, no, it's nothing that bad. I'm an alcoholic, my God. Um, you know, because when you're Catholic, it is, I mean, it's pretty close, you know. I don't know, it might even be worse if you're pregnant. Um, so anyway, she she fell apart, got over the, you know, shock of that, and, you know, I just let her kind of tell my dad. So anyway, my doctor had been trying to get me to go to this um, hospital for quite a while to treat this other big problem I had of, you know, cutting my wrists every other day. 
um, that my parents didn't want to send me, but as soon as they found out I was an alcoholic, I was packing my bags. Um, so I ended up going to this hospital um, in North Carolina, and I spent two months there. Um, and it was one of those real luxury kind of places that cost a lot of money. And what they do is put you in little groups according to what your problems are. And one of the groups they put me in was an alcohol group. And what they did was have these two guys that were older than dirt from AA come in and talk to us about their drinking. And here I am, 17 years old, and all I remember is this guy talking about DTs and seeing spiders and, I don't know, all this stuff. And I had just gotten into the hospital, and I, you know, hadn't gotten alcohol or drugs or anything out of my system yet, and I was just like, whatever. You know, I was... I was like, this AA thing's fine, and when I'm old and 35, and, you know, I'll be back, you know, because my life will be over with anyway. And um, so a couple days went past in the hospital, and then things started getting really weird for me, and I started seeing things. And they put me on the, ended up putting me on a locked unit, and um, then they put me on medication. And... What happened is I started hallucinating and seeing people come out of the walls, and then they put me on more medication for that, and then something else happened. They put me on more medication for that, and I was walking down the hall one day, and all my muscles just locked up, and my jaws locked. And, um, you know, and before this, you know, I was abusing the staff and cussing the staff and doing all this stuff, and now my jaws were locked shut, and I was trying to get help so I could talk and do all this stuff, and... Of course, they weren't in any hurry to help me with that. And, um, you know, and, and never once did I make the connection that my hallucinations might be related to my drinking and drug use. You know, I was seeing people come out of the walls. I thought that had nothing to do with spiders or anything like that. I just never made the connection. Um, you know, so I went on in this hospital and, and was on all this antipsychotic medication and and things like that, and um, and then they decided to take us to an AA meeting, all, all the people in the alcohol group. And I was I was ecstatic because I thought, you know, I could use a drink about this time anyway. <laughs> and um, yeah, because the only thing I knew about AA was something I'd seen on TV, and the character in this TV show was drinking at this meeting. So I was like, good, I'm going to go to this meeting. I'm going to get something to drink. And, you know, it'll be great. So I was so excited. I was getting all ready for the meeting. I was all getting all dolled up and everything and, you know, going to hit on someone and get some alcohol. And um, so we got in the little hospital van. And I got to the meeting. And I remember looking around. I saw the steps on the wall. And the only word out of all the words on those steps that just was like a beacon was the word God. And I was like, it's a cult. And I remember, you know, when people were like, I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic, and everyone was like, hi, Bob. I, was, I just I just laughed. I was like, this is a joke. Um, but I knew I wasn't about to ask anyone for alcohol. You know, I was like... Um, so I went back to the hospital really disappointed in the whole experience. And um, I ended up... Um, you know, just, 
I, I spent a New Year's there, like Christmas, I think, no, I went the day after Christmas, so New Year's I was there, um, and I remember we had this New Year's Eve party, um, and, you know, if you've never spent a New Year's Eve in a mental hospital, you haven't lived. Um, <laughs> all the patients get on their finest robes, um, they have a little record player, and, you know, they do the Thorazine shuffle the best they can. And, um, I mean, it was just, you know, New Year's Eve. That's how I rang in, I think, 79 or 80. I don't even, I think it was 79. Um, so, anyway, it's time to go home. I spent two months there. Um, you know, and it was, you know, my the night before I left, I remember I had gotten a letter from my little sister, and she was talking about how much she missed me and loved me and couldn't wait for me to come home. And I remember this tremendous guilt and shame hitting me because I had not changed. I had not done anything different. I mean, the, the whole time I was there, I was trading my clothes to my roommate, and her boyfriend would bring drugs in. Um, and I just remember just... God, just when I read the letter from my little sister and how much she wanted me home and couldn't wait to get her big sister home, I was just, it just killed me. And I, I broke open a Coke can and just, I mean, cut my wrists up that night. And I remember the, the morning it was time to leave, I, I went to my group and, um, and told them, gave my goodbye speech and how important it is to work on your problems and be honest and all that, and then you'll be able to get out of treatment and, or the hospital and do as good as I did. Um, I went home that night and was out drinking and using and everything that day. I mean, the day I got out. Um, hadn't changed a bit, wasted all that time, money, everything. Um, shortly after that, my 18th birthday, um, the day after my 18th birthday, I ended up back in the hospital. Um, and I didn't even know why until, like, I had been sober a while, why I ended up there. Because from the time I got out of that hospital till I got sober, the rest was a blur. Um, because I just drank myself into oblivion. Um, I found out I had alcohol poisoning from my birthday party. You know, I thought if you end up in the hospital after your birthday party, that just meant you had a good time. Um, and I ended up in the hospital, I think, for like five days. Um, and someone from Social Actions came to visit me in the hospital. It was a military hospital. And somehow I ended up at another AA meeting. I'm like, what is up with this? Um, so I went to this meeting, and I remember the people were sitting around, and they were going around introducing themselves again. Hi, Bob. And they got to me, and I said, my name is Laurel, and I'm not an alcoholic, and I'm not going to quit drinking, and you people can't make me. And they said, you'll be back. I'm like, I don't think so, okay? Um, so that was my other experience with AA. So my doctor discharged me and gave me a bottle of uh, Librium in case I got the shakes. And um, I swear, I started shaking the minute I walked out of the door. Um, so I took the bottle and started drinking. Um, so it wasn't probably, uh, I got kicked out of the house, I mean, like right after I got home from that. And this time I was working as a waitress at a pizza, pizza inn. Not a pizza hut, but a pizza inn. 
um, which I'm sure is much better, um, much higher class place. Um, and my dream back then, and I had a dream, was to become head waitress, save up enough money to buy a house, you know, and maybe start a family. You know, I had these big dreams. Um, you know, and, and what I, reality was I was making about $7 a day in tips. Um, you know, I had been kicked out of my house. I was living in a trailer with a friend of mine. Um, and in this trailer, she had a severe roach problem. And, um, and what happened was the roaches were so bad that if you wanted to shower, you had to reach your hand in the bathroom door and turn on the light and like count to ten and wait for them to scatter. And, and these roaches, I don't know, they weren't afraid of the light. So, so I just, I just quit showering and, um, and when I moved into this trailer, you know, I, I, I left my toothbrush at home when I got kicked out of the house, and it was like, you know, 50 cents for a toothbrush, and it was 50 cents for a quart of beer. So, you know, I learned to brush my teeth by putting toothpaste on my finger, and, um, you know, and then, of course, the washing machine would be full of roaches, so I'm not going to wash my uniform in that nasty washing machine. So, you know, I wore a dirty uniform, and, um, you know, and I was wondering why people weren't tipping me. You know, I was like, I give good service, people. Okay, maybe I stink, but come on. My service is top-notch. But anyway, I took my $7-a-day tips, and, and usually we got beer half price at the end of the day, so that's where my tips went. You know, so saving up for a house was pretty much out of the question. Um, you know, and I was just living in this world of delusion. You know, my disease was telling me that I was okay, and that I was cool, and that I had this great life happening. And I remember one night I came, I was sitting in the, the trailer, and um, and I was sitting on the edge of the couch, and by this time, um, I wasn't eating, so I was severely malnourished. Um, the last checkup I had, my doctor told me I had liver damage. He said I... He said I had the liver of a 40-year-old man, and I was 18 years old. Um, I wasn't sleeping because the roach problem in the bed. Um, so I just was like, I'm not going to sleep. Um, so, I mean, I was physically really sick. So this one particular night, I was sitting in the trailer and sitting on the edge of the couch, and uh, we had mirrors on the wall. It's back then you wanted to make your single wide look like a double wide, so you mirrored one whole side of the wall. And um, I remember I was sitting there one night, and I walked across the room, and I just laid my head on the mirror. And I really believe that God gave me a moment. just It was like a brief moment of clarity and reality. Because for the first time, I saw what I was really like. And it wasn't this cool chick that had a great job, that was saving up for a house and going to get married and have a family. I saw a girl that was physically sick, malnourished, underweight, tasty, stinky. Um, I saw my insides, and I saw how spiritually dead I was. 
I mean, I was a girl that at one time was going to be a nun, you know, and I saw that there was nothing to me anymore. I mean, I violated every value. I was dead inside. There was nothing to me. Um, and I knew that moment that I needed help, and I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. And my roommate came home, and I told her, I said, I need to get help, and we need to go right now. Because somehow I had the foresight to know that if I waited till the next day or the next day or the next week, that my delusions and my denial would come rushing back in. So we went back to the military hospital, and they told me there's nothing they could do for me because I was 18. Um, but he sent me to another place, another hospital in town. And what I did is I packed my, um, packed a little, uh, overnight bag. And I, you know, all the essentials you need to change your life, a bathing suit, a pair of jeans, you know, just, just everything you need. Um, so I checked myself into this hospital. Um, and I, you know, I don't even, my parents didn't even know where I was going or anything. And I checked myself into what they call their chemical dependency unit. And, um, you know, I was totally ready to change and to, you know, get off alcohol. I had no idea what it entailed, though. I mean, I thought I was going to be there for the weekend. Um, and I remember the lady signing me in, and she was telling me that she was an alcoholic and drug addict and all this. And I looked at her. And I was like, there is no way, lady, you're telling me a lie. Because this lady was absolutely beautiful and glowing and just, I mean, I was just, she looked like an angel. And I thought she was just telling me this so that I would relate to her or something or feel better. Um, so she signed me in and, and left, and I was alone. So what did I do? I called my friend. Hey, I'm in treatment. I'm going to. Here I am, I'm going to change my life, and, you know, this is it. This is the end of, you know, could you bring me a little something to get me through the night, though? And um, so one of my friends came up there to visit um, and brought me, um, which is the dumbest thing to do when you're locked up, but brought me acid. And um, uh, so I, I ended up... Um, Ended up breaking open my big razor and just cutting my arms. Out. Just it was not a good night. And um, ended up getting put on the locked psychiatric unit there. Um, and I don't know how long I spent there, but as soon, of course, as soon as I got back there, you know, they loaded me up with medication. And the the interesting thing is, my doctor was like eighty something years old, so he was detoxing me old school style. So he detoxed me with peraldehyde. Um, which is what they used back in the 30s. And this stuff you can't even put in plastic cups or plastic syringes or anything. You have to put it in glass because it eats through. Um, so it was, my detox was really woohoo. Um, so anyway, after a few days of this, I decided it was time for me to go home. You know, I was, I've had enough of this changing my life thing because uh, it wasn't working for me. Um, so I decided to sign myself out, and I went to the nurse's station. I said, I've had enough of this. I want to sign myself out. And they're like, you can't sign yourself out. I'm like, yes, I can. Sign myself in. I'm signing myself out. And they said, well, we've got to wait till morning because we need to call the doctor and all that. So I decided to take matters into my own hands and decide to escape. Um, 
So I, um, you know, did the whole dramatic thing, pushed the bed in front of the doors, and um, was going to bust out the windows. And back then, they had glass windows. So I took the lamp and busted out the window. And, it, and while I did that, I cut my arm because it went right through the window. And they rushed in and loaded me up with medication and um, called an ambulance and put me on a stretcher and put me in an ambulance and sent me to the emergency room of the hospital, which was right down the street. And when I got there, they just parked the stretcher right outside the door of the um, emergency room and left me. I was like, this is great. Um, and of course, before that, they loaded me up with medication and all that stuff. Um, so I got up off the stretcher and walked out. Well, I knew I only had moments before, you know, they had an APB out on me. Um, so I left the hospital and was, you know, ducking down through the bushes and things like that because I knew, you know, it was going to be police report and all that. Um, and I had to get to a phone. And, I mean, it was just minutes and the helicopters were already out because I heard the helicopters and they were looking for me. Um, and police cars were already driving by and I knew that it was already on the radios. All the cars driving by were already hearing this, this breaking news report about this escape mental patient. So I was slithering through bushes and stuff, making my way to this drugstore so I can use the phone. And I come in this drugstore and I'm trying to hide my face because he's got the TV on. And I know that, you know, the, the, the TV stations in front of the hospital with their TV crews out there making the news reports. So I, you know, I'm hiding my face and everything and asked to use the phone and I called my roommate. I said, you gotta come get me. I escaped. So I met her around back behind, you know, the dumpster. And, um, she came and picked me up and she looked at my arm. She's like, you've gotta go get your arm stitched up. So she drove me back over to the hospital, and um, <laughs> I jumped on my got back on the stretcher, and um, <laughs> they didn't even know I was gone. <laughs> yeah, and that's the story of my life, you know. I'm just like this egomaniac, low self-esteem, you know. Um, anyway, when I got back to the hospital, they decided it was time to commit me. Um, for real. Um, you know, and, and this is where I really began to see the miracles happen in my life. You know, um, I got committed to a locked adolescent psychiatric unit. And back there, I mean, we were locked up. I was locked up. And I spent the next three months um, basically treated like an animal. I mean, I was tied to my bed at night. Um, you know, they uh, padlocked the arms to the side of the bed, the legs to the side of the bed, sheets across my chest, pads on, or mitts on my hands, um, watched us go to the bathroom, watched us shower. Um, this is where I hit my bottom. You know, I had no alcohol. I had nothing. They took away all my medication and just, I mean, I had nothing. Um, there was no meetings. There was nothing. I was just locked up, tied down, and spent three months like that. Um, I got, uh, when my three months was up, they took me back to court to recommit me, and the doctor left my chart at the hospital, and the judge let me go. I called my parents. They didn't want me home. They knew I hadn't changed. Um, I had nowhere to go. Everything I owned, I had in this 
plastic trash bag. Um, I signed myself out of the hospital, walked around the grounds for a while, and signed myself right back in. And the miracle and the beauty that had occurred while I was back there hitting bottom, they actually started a real chemical dependency program. When I first signed in, it was just one of those kind of therapy kind of places, you know, where they really didn't have a program. And when I, but when I was back there hitting bottom, they had someone come in and start a real chemical dependency program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I signed myself back in and signed myself into that program, that's where I found AA. And by the time I got there, I was ready. I was like, I will do anything. I don't care what it is. I will do anything. I am so ready for this. Um, and it was back then, it was not the sweet little let's work the 12 steps kind of place. It was the kick your butt on a daily basis kind of place. Um, and then we'll take you to a meeting later on tonight. If you can walk, you know, <laughs> it was one of those kind of places. If we can steal you off the ground, we'll take you to a meeting. Um, I was the youngest person to get sober, um, probably in the state of North Carolina, at least that's what they told me. Um, you know, I went to the meetings and it freaked me out because there was nobody even close to my age. Um, it was the crusty old timers. And they would say things to me like, are you sure you're an alcoholic? And I spilled more on my pie, blah, you know, all that stuff. I was like, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Um, you know, and, and I sat there and would listen to their stories. And they would talk about losing their wives and their cars and their homes and their jobs. And I was like, I can't relate to that. You know, I didn't have that stuff to begin with. And I listened to how they felt. And I listened to the desperation and the loneliness and the emptiness and the shame. And I related to that. And that's how I had to listen. I had to listen with my heart, not my head. And I related, I don't care if they were 100 years old, I related to everybody because I opened my heart. Um, I was so willing uh, when I came back to do anything. I would play spades with these old people. I would, uh, you know, sit in the clubhouse. I didn't care. I wanted to be sober so bad. Um, I spent another 30-something days in there, and I remember the steps, you know, and uh, doing the third, came, coming to the third step in the whole God thing again, and how terrified I was of turning my life and will over to the care of God, because at this point, I wanted nothing to do with him, because as far as I was concerned, everything bad that happened in my life was his fault, so why would I turn my life and will over to him? And I remember I was having a problem with that one day and and I remember it was time to get my 30-day chip and I went to talk to my counselor um, Keith Lewis he doesn't care if I break his hand or anything um, and I told him you know I'm getting my 30-day chip today and I really want my mom to be there I want them to see that you know I'm serious this time and he said well why don't you turn it over I was like to God he's like yeah I was like a lot of good that's gonna do me and so I went back to my room, and I was like, okay, God, if you love me, if you care about me, then you'll make my mom be at that meeting. 
so I called my mom and told her, you know, I'm getting my chip. I'd like for you to be at that meeting today. And um, she's like, well, mm, I'll try. I was like, okay, whatever. So she called me back later and she said, well, I don't think I'm going to make it. I was like, okay, see, God doesn't work. God doesn't care about me. So I went to the meeting, got my chip, and turned around. My mother was standing in the back of the room. And I went up to her and I said, what happened? She goes, I don't know. She said, I did everything I could not to be here. She said, I tried to take a nap. I tried to do dishes. I tried to clean. So I don't know. Something made me come today. I was just like, holy moly. <laughs> and I remember that's how I started turning my life and will over to God, is little baby steps. I would be like, okay, God, if you love me, if you care about me, then I'm going to give you this. I'm going to see how you do with this. And you know what? That's how he took me. And that's how it worked for me at the beginning. Um, every, you know, I remember my sponsor, my first sponsor gave me this necklace and it had a little mustard seed in it. And I remember thinking how tiny a mustard seed is. And she used to tell me, that's all the faith you need right now. And I would look at my little necklace and the size of that mustard seed and said, I can do that. <laughs> I can have that much faith today. Um, of course, it's grown since then. I couldn't wear a necklace that big. Um, but I got out of treatment, and of course my parents took me back home. Um, you know, and, and I had the old, but I'm different. I'm only 18. You know, and I, you know, and the rules don't apply to me. You know, they had the old change of friends and, and all that stuff, and, you know, and I thought, that's fine for you guys, but I'm different. I need a, a new big book. I'll write it, you know. Um, maybe I could rework the steps just a little bit. You know, I have to have my friends. I have to date within the first year because I can't live without a boyfriend. I mean, you know, just just those little tiny things that just, you know, just grate on you and just lead you right back to that dream. And I remember thinking... I can handle seeing my old friends because you know what? I'm going to a meeting every day. I'm working my steps. I know everything about this disease. I mean, I got to spend how long in treatment? I could give you lectures on this disease. I'm prepared. I've got it. Human power. And I remember I went to see one of my old friends because she had a drinking problem. I was going to help her. So I rode my little bike because my parents wouldn't let me drive. I rode my bike over to her house, and I sat down with her, and, you know, I was like, you're not going to believe this. I've been in treatment three times. I almost died, blah, 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 blah. I told her the whole story, and she's like, do you want a drink? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I like to refer to that as my slippy poo, because um, I only had two sips of a beer that day. Um, you know, slip it, slip light, just one calorie. Um, but my thinking changed. I mean, I might as well have drank a cake because my thinking changed. And I got back on my little bicycle, and I was full of resentment and rage, and I was already thinking what I was going to throw on my sponsor. And I was like, if she makes me pick up another white chip, then I'm going out tonight and getting drunk. And, I mean, I was already full of excuses and everything. 
And, um, you know, I told my sponsor, and she said, yes, you're getting another white chip. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went back to the meeting that night and, and, and picked up a white chip, and that was my last drink, and that was January 24th, 1981. And I tell you, sobriety has been unbelievable. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean unbelievably good. <laughs> um, you know, because I still continue to do things my way for the first, oh, year or two. Um, I did the boyfriend thing, you know, when they told me not to, because I had to have a boyfriend. I'm not complete unless I have a boyfriend. Um, and now I know why. I didn't even know who I was. I didn't like myself. Therefore, I chose somebody <laughs> it was a loser. Okay, let's just be blunt. Um, you know, but he was sober nine whole months. And I was just like, oh, the places we will go in sobriety together. Um, you know, I just really pictured us being having this beautiful AA marriage based on the principles of these programs with little AA babies trailing behind us, you know, with flowers, and I mean, you know, I, I just pictured us meditating together and praying together and reading the big book together and going to meetings together, and it was nothing like that. Um, he quit going to meetings, and I continued going to meetings, and eventually he drank, um, so it was nothing like that, and then I ended up as a single parent at, you know, 20 years old. Um, so, you know, and it's only through hindsight that you see these things. You know, some wonderfully incredible, beautiful things happened as a result of, of my misery. Um, you know, I remember early in sobriety, you know, my husband, he had a problem with working. And um, he just didn't like to work. And um, so we spent the first year of our marriage living in poverty. And... We had moved to Tennessee, and we had this this baby now, and I was, I guess, 20 years old, and I, I guess sober, I don't know, two years or something like that, and he had lost another job, and, you know, he had then got a job at Hardy's, and he was making $250 a month, and our rent was $180. Um and I remember thinking, how are we possibly going to live? I mean, how how are we how are we going to do this? And you know, I I had people turn it over to God, make a gratitude list. I'm like, right, hello, give me some money. <laughs> a gratitude list doesn't work when you got bills to pay and a little mouth to feed. Um, and I remember praying, and I remember a book I read about. Thanking God, the, the book was about thanking God for everything. Not just the good thing in your life, but everything. And I started thanking God for the bills we had that we couldn't pay. And I thanked God for the roaches in our apartment. And I thanked God for not having food for my baby. And I thanked God that, that we didn't have money to do the laundry. And we didn't have a car to drive. And we didn't have a phone in the house. And, and um, you know, just everything. I would on a daily basis, thank you, God, for these things. 
And I remember that things did not change, but my whole attitude changed. And suddenly I realized that, you know, even though the circumstances didn't change, I began to change. I remember reading something that said that God will not always change the circumstances of our life, but he will always change us in the circumstances. And that's what happened to me. I learned what gratitude was. And I also learned that God's will is not always what I thought it was. It's not always when I'm doing good and things are going well for me. You know, I believe today that was God's will. You know, I always get caught up in in God's will being good and when I'm happy and when I'm doing these wonderful things. Um, you know, what God gave me during that time was the strength to get by and the strength to depend on him and and really um, really turn to him in me in my need. Um, you know, what I learned today is that everything that has happened to me has been a gift, good or bad. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to, to touch on that I didn't want to talk about at the beginning because I don't like people to, to, to focus on is when I was young, I was sexually abused in, within my family. And one of the true gifts that I received from this program was the gift of forgiveness through the fourth step. And, you know, it's... We take something so traumatic, such as such as abuse, and you know, we're, we I was so stuck in that, and I was a victim. And poor me, look at me. I I can't possibly do this or do that or get well or because this happened to me. And it's right there in the fourth step. What we do with that? Pray for the person. Look at the person as a sick person. You know, we we. You know, I look at people with, with illnesses such as cancer or, or other things and we're so quick to empathize with them. You know, and, and I started looking at people who are spiritually sick the same way with, with empathy and compassion. And I started realizing that this person in my family was spiritually sick and started looking at this person with compassion and praying for that person. And I don't know when it happened, but suddenly I realized that I had forgiven this person. And I'll tell you what, there is no better gift for yourself than forgiveness. There, I mean, the freedom that comes with forgiveness is unbelievable. Because I'm no longer a victim. I no longer have that label over me. Um, you know, uh, three or four years ago, I went to visit this brother. And I had not seen him since I was 15 years old. And I flew all the way across the country by myself. Because I wanted him to know that I loved him and that I had forgiven him. And I remember we had gone camping, and I thought his wife was going to go with us, but she couldn't join us for the next day, so it was just me and my brother. And um, it was either camp um, in a tent or sleep on the boat with him. That was my choices. And, you know, he wasn't going to do me any harm or anything, but I chose to camp in a tent by myself. And it was the, the woods were those kind of woods where serial killers stay between their murders. And and I'm not a camper, but I chose to, to set up tent by myself and stay in these woods, and he stayed on the boat. And I remember being in the tent that night, and I was so grateful just for the gift of forgiveness and the gift of this program and the fourth step and, and you know, just the, 
the grace that comes with that forgiveness. And just just to be able to be with my brother and have that peace between us and that love between us. You know, I believe today that there's nothing that has happened to me that is not a gift from God because I have used everything to his to his glory. I have not let anything go to waste that has happened to me, good or bad. Um, this program and these steps have brought about such amazing peace in my life. Um, it's incredible. I mean, it, it's it's amazing um, to me the changes that have happened just within me. Um, and I always like to judge how I'm doing in sobriety by how the people in my life are doing. You know, how's my family doing? Have they changed? Now, I've seen my husband change. You know, he was totally agnostic when we got married. You know, and now I hear him talking about praying and talking about God. Um, I have a son that's um, married um, that is, um, he's in college, but he's going to become a minister. Um, I had nothing to do with that. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's it's his upbringing, and maybe it's because I was available and brought him up spiritually. Um, you know, I see how my friends are doing. Are my friends growing spiritually? Um, you know, how do I treat other people? You know, it's all in the 12 steps. Um, I choose to go deeper um, in, in my step work. Um, I know what kept me sober last year, last week, is not going to keep me sober today. I may stay sober, but am I going to grow? You know, that's what I like to look at. Am I going to grow? I go, I have a spiritual director today. I, I'm the type of person I like to change. I mean, some people don't like change. I love change. I don't like to stay the same. Um, I recently, well, three years ago, which is the craziest thing I've ever done, is decided to go back to the church of my upbringing, which kills me because I'm so anti-Catholic. And and I made an appointment with this priest. And I remember I got in there and I told him, you know, I just, all my defenses were just up. And I sat there and told him, I'm an AA, I do all this service work for people, and I do this and I do that, and I work these steps, and this and that, and I'm sober, and blah, blah, blah. I tell him all these wonderful things I do. And he stopped me, and he said, you know, it's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. And I was like, whoa. It's not about how much I love God. It's about how much he loves me. And that never occurred to me. I mean, it's in the tradition. A loving God. I've been sober this long, and it just never occurred to me. You know, people say, watch what you pray for, and this and that, and I used to be afraid to turn my life and will over to God. Not anymore. Because I have faith that I have this loving God. I, I'm not afraid to pray for anything. I'm not afraid to pray for humility anymore, because I have a loving God. He's not out to get me anymore. <laughs> he never was out to get me, but that's how I, that's what I used to think. Um, I don't have those fears anymore. You know, when my perception of God changed, my entire life changed. And that's only happened through this program, working these steps just on a deeper level, working with others. I mean, you know, it, it just amazed me because I could have 
and I have, you know, with with this length of sobriety and and you know, 18 years sobriety or 20 years of sobriety, I have stopped growing and going to meetings and working this program. I've been sober 20 years. I don't really need to share at meetings. I don't need to listen to people. I don't need to work these steps. I've read the big book. What do I need to do? I'm not going to drink. You know, that's not true. I have so much growing I could still do. And I want to. And that's the difference today. I really, really want to because I think God has so much in store for me. You know, today I'm like, it can't possibly get any better than it is right now. And the truth is, it's going to get better and better and better and better for me, for everybody. Um, and that's, that's, that just blows me away. I mean, this, this, journey that we have of sobriety is just, it's limitless how much we can grow. It's limitless how much I can grow, and that's just so exciting to me. You know, as when I think about the person I was and trying to kill myself and, and, and all that and how far I'm so, how far I've come and how different I am from that person, it just blows me away, and that's only by the grace of God. Because on my own, I'd be dead, and I know that. I want to end by reading um, something that I, I think just sums up um, what I hope to be. Um, that I think, for me, is God's will for me. Um, and it comes from Mother Teresa. Um, and this is just something that, that I just pray for on a daily basis. And it says, each time anyone comes into contact with us, they must become different and better people because of having met us. We must radiate God's love. And to me, that's the name of the game. And I want to thank you all for asking me and being patient with me because I, I, I just feel like I've just been jumbled. Um, and I, I thank you for having me. Um, and I hope you all have a wonderful conference. Thank you.